Hello friends, my name is Ian Graham and I'm the pastor of Ecclesia in Princeton, New Jersey. And I am so excited to introduce to you this teaching series, a series that will look at the story, the big story that the Bible is telling from Genesis to Revelation, a series we're calling from Garden City. The story begins in a garden and it ends in a city and is defined at every twist and turn by the love and the presence of God. That God will stop at nothing to be God with us. And so if you've ever tried to read the Bible or you've ever been asked, what what actually is the Bible about? We hope that this teaching series will be a blessing to you. and will be an invitation to see the big story of the Bible and to see your story in light of that beautiful, gracious, life-giving, eternal story. So wherever you are, we pray this is a blessing to you. Grace and peace to you. from today is from Ephesians 5, 1 through 20, and I'll be reading from the NRSV. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But fornication and impurity of any kind or greed must not even be mentioned among you, as is proper among saints. Entirely out of place is obscene, silly, and vulgar talk but instead, let there be thanksgiving. Be sure of this, that no fornicator or impure person, or one who is greedy, that is, an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be associated with them. For once you were darkness, but now in the Lord you are light. Live as children of light, For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. Try to find out what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what such people do secretly. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For everything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Sleeper, awake, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be careful then how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. So do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. As you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, singing and making melody to the Lord in your hearts, giving thanks to God the Father at all times and for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Well, hello. My name is Ian. Uh, I'm the pastor here, and we're so glad you're here with us this morning. If you're new or if you've been here many times, it's such a joy to celebrate the season of Advent. And uh, we have been tracking through this big story of the Bible, and we're kind of letting those two things merge. The season of Advent has historically been a season of waiting, a season of anticipation, a season of even acknowledging that God comes to us when we are not waiting on him. And so today we are in this place where we are acknowledging and looking at the story that God has has shown and has demonstrated and has lived out. And we are inviting God into this space. We are waiting on him. Well, I I had this interaction pretty frequently 
Uh, most recently, I was in a, uh, an Uber in Portland, and this guy, I got in the car, but as I was getting in the car, I put my bags in the trunk, and he had, he was very clear on the, the football team that he supported, um, and so I just, I, don't, I like to mess with people. So I get in the car, and he's a big Steelers fan. Again, this is not a sports reference. It'll be over quickly if you hate sports, I promise. But he's a big Steelers fan, and I get in the car. I'm just like, are you a big Ravens fan? He proceeds to curse me up and down. I am like, am I going to have to get out of the car? Like, this is like, like I, he's like, I'm going to kick you out of my car. And he's, he's sort of messing with me, but he just like, you know, all the swear words that you can envision uh, that probably, that were not spoken in this church, but, you know, uh, elsewhere. And so then we're driving, and then as it goes, we start talking, and he starts talking about his background. He used to be a police officer. He talking about my background. He's like, so what do you do? I'm like, well, I'm a pastor. <laughs> and you can just see the, like, r- recollection. He's just like, I just, just f- F-bombed this guy to no end. And even though I was kind of messing with him, he's just like, and, and it's an interesting dynamic, right? Because in that moment, I can see what does he expect from God? Who does he think God is? And in that moment, he thinks he's been caught red-handed by one of God's henchmen. See, God, that's one of the bad people, right? Like, you, you heard the words that came out of his mouth. And I think as we've been going through this story, as much as we put different words to it, there's this question that resonates with all of us, is what does God look like? What does God want from me? What does it mean for there to be a creator God? And, you know, people have answered that question in so many different ways. I think of Christopher Hitchens, who was, who was brilliant, but also just hated the church, hated everything about faith. And I, I read a, a sort of an account of his life, and he was talking about his own experience with self-righteous people in an English boarding school. And how off-putting that was. And it really, like in many ways, set him off on a path to where he's like, listen, if this is what these people claim to believe, if they claim to be Christians and they act this way, then perhaps we need to ask some bigger questions. What does God look like? It's sort of the question we always come back to here. and It's the question that we've been tracing throughout this series. And today... I want to invite you to see that you have been put on the front lines of declaring to the world the story of God. You know, often when people do ask me what I do, I say I'm a pastor, which is like sort of true. But I'm really like a subversive agent for a kingdom that knows no boundaries. I really am trying to undermine all the structures of this world. I really serve a different king. And I'm trying to say, this is what God looks like. And we're on the home stretch of our tracing the big story of the Bible. And I encourage you, if you've missed part of this series, I don't often do this, but check out the podcast. It has been helpful. Even last week, I felt like I should stop a little quicker than I wanted to. Um, so I expanded on that teaching from my living room. You can check that out. But we've, we've sort of arrived at this point of the story. Last week we saw the resurrection of Jesus. And what we've been seeing is that in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, there's this continuity in the story. You see, I think for so many of us, especially those of us who are raised in the church, the difficulty often is that we can't see the way the parts connect. And it all gets a really confusing 
Like, what is going on in the Old Testament, and how does that have anything to do with what Jesus comes to do and to proclaim? And so we've been trying to just ever so carefully connect these dots to see that Jesus accomplishes and fulfills the promises that were given to Abraham and to David. And it's so beautiful. Matthew 1 captures this so concisely. As, as he introduces Jesus, as he says, this is Jesus, the Son of God, and he says, the Son of Abraham and the Son of David. And so we're trying to see, because my conviction is this. When we see the story, when we see the forest, the trees begin to make a lot more sense. And when we have an imagination that is fueled by the Bible, it, it helps us to see every part of our lives as a part of God's beautiful inbreaking kingdom. And so when we last left the story last week, Jesus had appeared to his disciples. They were in fear in a locked room. But as Jesus shows up right in the midst of their fear and their anxiety, their fear is turned to rejoicing. There's this wonder and awe that takes over the room. They don't really know what to do next, but they're like, oh my goodness, something has profoundly changed. And Jesus shows up in that locked room and he declares to them, peace. And Ecclesia, what does God have to say to you today? No matter what you came in here with, no matter what shame you dragged in here, no matter what sort of sense of impending doom you brought in here, what does God have to say to you? Peace. This is what he greets us with. He says, shalom. And just as we saw back in Genesis, During the course of this teaching series, the question remains, okay, Jesus is resurrected. This amazing thing has happened, and it's so okay if babies cry. It's so okay. This amazing thing has happened. What are we going to do with it? How is God going to tell the whole world what has happened? We saw this back in Genesis. God makes a plan to make the world right again, where shalom was distorted and broken. God chooses a family. He says to Abraham, go from your country, and I will make you a blessing to all nations. Kind of an interesting plan on God's part, right? Like if you want to reach the whole world, why would you start with one family? Because God is a God who is relentlessly in relationship. He will not do things at scale. He will only do things in the intimacy of one-to-one conversation. And so just as we're at this kind of pivotal moment in the story, Jesus is alive. How will we declare that Jesus is his Messiah? Well, Jesus does what he has always done. He appears to his friends. He shares a meal with them. And that's what we're going to see today. He gives them a task. He says, go in the light and the afterglow of my resurrection. And as we look at this story, as we look at some of the themes that we want to trace out today, I want to just at the same time answer some of the questions. What does it mean for us to be Jesus' emissaries here in this place, here in Princeton? Now, before we dive into our teaching text, which Chris read for us, I have to do a very quick stop-off today in both Matthew and Acts. At the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus sums up the achievement of his life. What has he won on the cross? And what is he asking for us to do? He says in Matthew 28, verse 18, it says, And Jesus came and he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And notice, that's not in the future. 
That's not some time far off in the distant, you know, like beyond. It's right now. He says all authority because of what Jesus has done on the cross. His crucifixion is a victory over the powers of darkness. It is a victory over the powers of sin and death. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember this, because the, the story, as we've seen it so far, is God stopping at nothing to be God with us. Jesus says to them, in light of this commission, remember this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He will not leave us or forsake us. He will not leave us to accomplish his mission alone because it is God's mission, as we're going to see. Jesus is the reigning king of the world right now. His victory is for all of time, and now our role as the church is to implement this victory both in our lives, to receive the reality of his spirit, the peace and the joy that surpasses all understanding, and to implement this victory in our cities, in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our communities. At the beginning of Acts, this is summarized with Jesus' promise. Uh, this is called his ascension. It's such a vital part of kind of the story, but such a part that we, we often skate by. But in Acts chapter 1, Jesus says to his disciples, just as he ascends to heaven, he says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. For whatever reason, God, in all of his infinite wisdom, did not decide to declare to the world that Jesus was the rightful Messiah, that he was the true Lord of all the earth, by going to the Roman uh, central, central power of government and saying, hey, Caesar, uh, we know you killed Jesus, but he's actually Lord, and uh, here he is, resurrected, reigning. For whatever reason, God did not send Jesus to the temple and to say, hey, uh, I know you guys killed me but three days ago, but here I am, for whatever reason. God does not choose to act in that way, but in his infinite wisdom, what Colossians calls the, the, the wisdom that was hidden from, from the beginning of time, God chose people like you and I to declare to the world that this is who God is, that he's better than the PR and the propaganda, that he is so faithful and loving and good. The church is called to be a witness to the right now Reign of King Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now the question for us, and the question that we so uh, readily move to, is what does that mean for us? What does the power of the Spirit looking like? Perhaps you've observed many Christians trying to grasp for power through our political apparatuses by identifying themselves with politicians of questionable character and morals. Perhaps you observe Christians saying that the, that the church should always be apolitical, that it should never uh, delve into these worlds of, you know, that, that are so easily compromised. Perhaps you've been hesitant, like you've been a Christian for a while, but you don't really want anybody to know. Because all the news that comes out about the church just seems to be bad news. It seems like the church is just often wrapped up in these terrible things. Or perhaps, like, 
we live in a pluralistic society. And what that word means is that people sort of acknowledge that there are all sorts of differing stories that are being told about the world. Perhaps you're just like, I don't really know what I believe. I'm not real sure about that. Why, why would I, like, step on somebody else's toes? Maybe you've had some of these thoughts, and you're like, I don't, I don't really know what to do with this. How do I bear witness? These are all really good questions and perspectives. And what I want to do is just delve deeper today into what the body of Christ should be, what the church is called to be as God's witnesses, and then hopefully reframe some of our call. Now, when, when I talk about the church, like literally the whole New Testament is about the church. Most of, of the letters that are in the New Testament were written to specific churches. And here's something that should be comforting to all of us. They were written because there were problems in the churches. Like rarely is Paul or John like, hey, you're doing everything great. Just want to encourage you. Keep going. Usually it's like, hey, what on earth? Like Jesus is king and you guys are doing this? Like seriously? So... Let's all take a deep breath. Like, there are so many passages that we could look at as to what it means to be the church. But this passage I just kept coming back to in Ephesians chapter 5. When I think of the church, one of the books I think of most readily is the book of Ephesians. And I commend it to you. All right, Paul writes, he says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and live in love as Christ loved us. And gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Okay, Sean, can you put up that slide? This, I'm going to do something I don't always do. I'm going to give you the whole teaching right now. All right. The church is called to be like Jesus. That's right. And we're called to be like Jesus in mission, holiness, and worship. Those of you who are note takers, rejoice. Those of you who are new today, you'll figure it out. Now, this is such a beautiful time to reflect on that first line. Be imitators of God. To a world asking, what does God look like? God put on flesh and bones. That song we sang, that arrival, my word. Like, the architect has stepped inside the plan. Like, that is what is going on. The word became flesh. The one who created the world takes on created confines. He has made his dwelling with us. Be imitators of God is no longer a mystery. How could we know what God looks like shrouded in cloud and fire? Jesus has shown us what God looks like. Hebrews 1, in the past he has spoken in many ways, but now he has spoken fully and finally in his son, who is the exact representation of his being and the very substance of his essence. Jesus is what God looks like. Rejoice. Because Jesus, when he comes to show us what God looks like, says to us, peace. And Paul encourages us, be imitators of God. And what a beautiful time to reflect on what it means to imitate God, to imitate Jesus, as we start to prepare our hearts for the wonder of God with us anew. As we reflect on the wonder of God with us, what better time to think of that than Advent? Jesus has uh, inviting us to the fullness of life, but we only receive it when we live as he did. He is the truth. He is the true story of the world, but he is also the way. To live out the Jesus truth, we have to live in the Jesus way to receive the Jesus life. Now, at this time of year, we think of how Jesus was born on the margins. You, you could uh, imagine, 
Like when God takes on flesh, he probably has his pick of where he shows up. Like if Jesus is royal, he's not born in a palace. Jesus is God coming to us, and yet he's not born at the center of where the action is going on. Rather, he's born in Bethlehem on the margins. Jesus doesn't identify with those who are in power in his day and age. He's not a Roman. He is a Jewish man, a brown-skinned man in a first-century context where the Romans were ruling over the Jewish people, where they are oppressed, where people are hung on crosses to show what happens when you mess with Rome. To imitate Jesus, then, is to identify our lives with those who would be deemed on the margins in our own society and world. This is God's mission. This is who he's showing himself to be. Isaiah 57 says, the high and lofty one is high in his holy place, but he dwells with the poor and the lowly. This is our call, Ecclesia. This is who Jesus is. This isn't something that we do as a project to say, God, look how proud of us you should be. We're moving towards the margins. Paul says, imitate Jesus. Be like him. He comes as a child. He's vulnerable and weak, and we should not skate past this part of the story. This is not an ancillary detail. Jesus embodies strength by existing in weakness. He grows in obscurity. Like, if you've read the Gospels, think of how very little we know of the overall scope of Jesus' life. 30-something years of his 30 to 33-year-old life, mostly in obscurity. Jesus, to imitate, to imitate him, he walked with God. His life was defined by intimacy with God. He would do these great miracles. And then in Luke's gospel specifically, it tells us how often he would steal away to the quiet place to be strengthened and to be formed. His life is defined by communion with God. And when Jesus searches through the scriptures to say to a waiting congregation, what it is that he came to do and who it is that he is. He turns to Isaiah 61 in Luke and he reads, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. We're starting to get a picture of what God looks like. He heals he casts out demons. He washes the feet of his disciples. And eventually, because of the movement of his overall life of self-giving love, nobody takes his life from him. He lays his life down willingly, and he gives it on a cross for us. And we live as the church of Jesus, imitating God, those proclaiming, those witnesses to the reality of the resurrection when we live as Jesus did. Receiving life and power from God, serving the world around us out of the abundance of that relationship. You see, when we are in communion and intimacy with God, God is going to move us to where his heart is beating. Paul says to the Ephesians, live as imitators of God. The earliest Christians did not understand their faith as one religion amongst many but they understood it as a way of living in the world. The earliest Christians called their following Jesus the way. And Dallas Willard talks about it. He says, he says following Jesus is, is like apprenticing yourself to his life, imitating God, doing what Jesus would do if he had your life. And all the 90s Christians kids are like, the what, what would Jesus do? Like, 
actually wasn't that far off. <laughs> kind of lame, but not that far off. Paul then instructs the Ephesians. He says, be imitators of God. Live in love. John 3, verse 16, one of the most famous verses, even if you're not you know, completely versed in church and all the language, you probably have heard this, describes the love of God. What does it mean to live in the love of God? John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. This is the love that we receive The extravagant love of the Father. And this is the love that the church is called to embody and to give away. For God so loved us that we cannot help but give ourselves to the world. Now perhaps you've heard the term in a church context, mission. We're going on a mission trip. We have a mission that we are undertaking. Now how many of you, when you woke up today, you thought to yourself, I have a mission I was, I was awoken out of bed for a purpose, and I have a mission to carry the good news of Jesus into every place that I go to today because I want to be with Jesus. Is that the thought you had? You're like, yo, chill. It's like 11 o'clock on a Sunday. <laughs> the coffee is still kicking in. Or perhaps when you hear the word mission, maybe you've had a bad experience. Maybe you look back on some of your previous missional efforts I mean, sometimes the most critical people of of things trying to help people, like, just see the beauty of Jesus, sometimes the most critical people are people that grew up doing it because they're looking at their methods and being like, I don't know, was that right? Was that wrong? And I'm not here to say what's what on that, but what that word mission sort of brings about for you, do you start to feel afraid or uncomfortable or do you feel a sense of shame or do you feel that, like, sense of tension, like, what's God going to ask me to do? But I want to invite you to, to uh, understand mission. And I think we misunderstand mission when we think it is something that primarily we do. Again, John 3, verse 16, God is the missional God. For God so loved the world that he gave. God begins the mission. The witness begins with God. It doesn't start with us. Jesus, at the very end of that same gospel in John, the last chapter of John, He says, or actually the second to last chapter, John 20. He says, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. The mission, Ecclesia, is God's mission. And we follow, we are like Jesus when we get on his level, when we follow him to the places that he is. We have to be with Jesus. And Jesus is the one that is going to the outcast, that is leaving the 99 to go after the one. Jesus is the Father running to the Son who is far off. This is our call, Ecclesia. And outside this room right now, there are so many people who don't know who they are. And I don't say that to shame you or to say, like, you should think about others. What I'm saying is God is going to them. And if we want to be with God, which I think we do, then we have to get on his page and go to the places where he is. Live as imitators of God. To be a church is to imitate Jesus. That means we do the things that Jesus did. Jesus came proclaiming good news. And it wasn't just a truth that people would believe so that they would go to heaven when they would die. He set them free. He encountered unjust systems, and he said to them, he cast them out as if they were demons. He fed those who were hungry. This is our call. We engage in mission. 
because this is who our God is. Leslie Newbegin says this. He says, there is no participation in Christ without participation in his mission to the world. That by which the church receives its existence is that by which it is also given its world mission. I like this other quote from Newbegin. I want to do this one too. I think that the deepest motive for mission is simply the desire to be with Jesus where he is on the frontier between the reign of God and the usurped dominion of the devil. Ecclesia, Jesus has rescued us from the powers of darkness. As Ephesians says, once we were darkness, now we are light. We are invited with God to go. All right, Sean, put up the slide again. So we're to be like Jesus in mission, and we are to be holy like Jesus. Thank you. When God liberated the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, he called them to be a holy nation and a royal priesthood. And the book of Leviticus follows Exodus in this really strange way. And if you've ever been reading the Bible, usually like Genesis and Exodus, you're like, this is interesting. I don't always know what's going on, but kind of cool. You get to Leviticus, you're like, what happened? Like, I don't have any lambs or doves to sacrifice. I don't know that anybody's asked that of me. And you just start to maybe get a little bogged down. And then you get to Numbers. Many well-intentioned Bible reading plans have gone to die in Numbers. God has a vision for your life for holiness, which is really just a vision for your life for fullness and wholeness. The church is meant to be an alternative witness by our life together. We're supposed to say and tell a different story. Holiness, as we've seen, is first a proactive, positive vision. How many of you, when you hear holiness, you start thinking of all the things you can't do? Right? Now remember, we're, we're telling the whole story. So Genesis 2 how does God first invite us into holiness? He says, everything I have made is yours. Do not eat from this tree. All the stuff over here, it's like genie in Aladdin, cosmic universal powers, itty bitty living space. Do not eat from this tree. Holiness is not God saying, hey, this stuff would be really fun, but just arbitrarily I decided before the foundations of the earth you should not do these things. Holiness is, first of all, an invitation to be with God. And, and I want to just illustrate something that we so easily kind of fall into in our world. Now, the book of Leviticus, perplexing, compelling guide. Verse 19, uh, or excuse me, verse 2 of chapter 19. God says to the people, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So then presumably, the instructions that follow will be, how, how do you live out of this holiness? Okay, verse, uh, verse 9. You shall not put on a garment made of two different materials. Now, how many of you are wearing polyblends or polyester, something made out of cotton? You sinners. My word. What are you? We're going to have to do some confession. Now, what, what does wearing a polyblend have to do with the holiness of God? Well, in a society where blending extra fabrics, fabrics would resort, uh, result in extra work for those already poor and marginalized, apparently everything. Holiness has everything to do with the way that we live in the world. Our world is no different. Now, most of us are wearing clothes from places like China, Vietnam, India, and Bangladesh. And we have to ask ourselves the questions in a capitalist society, like, what, what does it mean? Like, do, what do we do with the knowledge when we find out that certain corporations are abusing their workforce, not paying them anything close to a living wage? Uh, like, Leviticus makes sense to us in that regard. You're like, you see how the principle translates. 
But in our own day, we have a strong impulse towards justice that is social and a weak impulse towards a holiness that is personal. We're fine with God telling us how to love the poor, how to love the marginalized. That is something that actually computes. Like if I were not standing in front of a church and talking about that, people would be nodding our head. And you know what? That's a good thing. That is a product of the way that Christian uh, sort of thought and idea has permeated our world. But we cannot have the kingdom of God without the king. And Jesus is inviting us into a, a wholeness, a holiness and look at what the word of God. And, and friends, what I'm actually going to do, I'm not going to unpack these details from Ephesians chapter 5. I'm just going to read them. Because Paul says, this is what it means to be imitators of God. This is what it means to live as a witness to the world of this is what God looks like. And the Holy Spirit does the work in convicting. I don't need to sit here and beat you up. If you're dragging sin and shame in here, hear this. Jesus has forgiven you. He has called you to a new life. He's called you to reorient and to repent. And so as I read these, don't, don't let them mire you in shame and in the lies of the enemy that tell you that God wants nothing to do with you. That is not true. But it is also true that God is calling us to a certain quality of life that is really just fullness and goodness. Paul writes, he says, but fornication and impurity of any kind or greed must not be mentioned among you as is proper among saints. Entirely out of place is obscene, silly, and vulgar talk, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. Be sure of this, that no fornicator or impure person or one who is greedy, that is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these, the wrath of God comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be associated with them, for once you were darkness, but now in the Lord you are light Live as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. All that is good and right and true. That is what you want. That is what your soul desires. Try to find out what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful to even mention what some people do secretly, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For everything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, sleeper, awake, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be careful then how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time, because the days are evil. So do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Ecclesia. God has a quality of life for us, and it is fullness. It is all that is good and right and true. He's not withholding things from you so you can say, ha, gotcha. It's not who God is. He's saying, all that is brought into the light is made light. And when we awake from our sleep, when we step into the light of Christ's resurrection, we find healing and wholeness. We find forgiveness. We are called to turn over the tables of unjust systems in our world. But first, we have to let God overturn the tables in our own hearts. Let judgment begin, as Peter says, with the house of God. All right. The church is to bear witness in mission and in holiness and last by worshiping. Paul writes, but be filled with the Spirit as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, singing and making melody to the Lord in your hearts, giving thanks to the God, the Father at all times, and for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, 
one of the beautiful things about being back here, we were, we were a church plant of about a year when the pandemic shut everything down, and it was just online church for well over a year. But the gathering here has been just like, almost like personal revival for me every week. You know, weeks that are awesome, strong, like I feel like the Spirit's moving, weeks that I'm just like, I don't know what that was, but I think God was here. Like just such a beautiful gift. Worship is our calling to be made in, in the image of God. It is who we were made to be. Eugene Peterson says, in acts of worship, the Holy Spirit internalizes himself in us and makes us an insider participants in the Father's work of creation and the Son's work of salvation. Worship is where we are formed into the story. Peterson goes on, he says, In the act of worship, we deliberately remove ourselves from our workaday world of assignments and responsibilities and relationships. We assume a posture of not doing, and we invite the Holy Spirit to form in us the life of love and holiness that makes us one with the Father and the Son, which we are assured that the Spirit is more than ready to do. We don't have to do anything, at least not in the way we are accustomed to doing things, but we do need to be present, attentive, receptive. We want to be in on what God is doing, and we want God to be in on what we are doing. Come, Holy Spirit. We want to walk out of the place of worship with a lighter step, still present, attentive, receptive, with a blessing on our heads and obedience in our step. And Ecclesia, when a wanting world wants to know what God looks like, they come and see a people who have not in a world of self and a world of self-adulation and sort of self-proclamation, in a world where people are dying to themselves and saying there's something bigger going on here. In a world where everybody is living their truth, we say there is a truth. But it's not a truth that is compressing me, that is making me smaller. It is a truth that has invited me to fullness and wholeness. Be imitators of God. You know, I go back to that question that we started with. The world is wanting to know what God looks like. If you've ever read the book Les Mis or you've seen the play Les Miserables, Jean Valjean, when he's destitute, he can't find work after being in prison for several years. And he's got this, like, basically this scarlet letter that won't allow him to find any more work. The only place he can think to go to is to the house of the bishop, the local church. And I think that is such a beautiful picture for us. We are called to be God's witnesses in the world. We are called to be with Jesus where he has gone on the frontier of mission, to be out in the world telling people this is who God is. We are called to allow Jesus to rearrange the furniture of our own hearts, to allow for more of himself. And We are called to be a worshiping people, to come to the table, to receive his life. And friends, I just want to say to you, if you came in here aching for hope, you are in the right place. This is the place of reconciliation. This is the place where the face of God says to you, peace. And friends, as we go from here, you go as ambassadors of that peace, as witnesses to the kingdom of God. Let's pray together, and then we're going to invite the worship team to come up. Holy Spirit, Lord, we pray over these moments of response and in worship, God, that you would come. God, that you would foster just a spirit and a willingness, God, a desire to know you more in this place, God. To be imitators of you. 
God, for any of us who are sensing a, a, a sense of shame or darkness, Lord, Lord, I speak on your behalf that if we turn to you, God, you are faithful and just to forgive. That your cross has won the forgiveness of sins, has conquered all of our shame. God, would you make us in your image, God? Would you help us to be livers of the story? Imitators of God. Lord, we thank you for this time, Lord. We thank you for the way that you meet with us. It's in your name we pray, in the beautiful name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.